Welcome to the Perfect First Layer podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we answer questions from you, the 3D printing community. My name is Guy Dunlap from Guy's Shop, and today with me are my co-hosts, JJ. Hey there. And Nathan. Hello. It sounds like JJ let out a little bark when he was introducing (laughs) himself. (laughs) I got a guest star today. Oh, sweet. Well, we do depend on your questions for this podcast, so if you have one for our panel, please go to perfectfirstlayer.com. Go to the submit page and send it along. And we also have a Patreon account. And we only have one level right now. We are simply asking for a small donation to help keep this podcast rolling along. So please go to worldwidewebpatreon.com slash perfectfirstlayer. So what do you got going on in the lab right now, JJ? So a bunch of, bunch of printing this week um, and recovering from sickness. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> trying to get back to making videos soon. What were you, you printing anything in particular or stuff for videos? Uh, just a bunch of random little things and yeah. testing out printers. <laughs> well, I see that one big vase behind you. That was from the Elegoo Pro Max Deluxe. The, their big old biggest printer possible. 400 millimeters <sighs> tall print on that one. Um, yeah. So huge prints. Planning how, something how, how long did that take to print? That one, since it's a vase mode, it only took... Maybe an hour or so oh, really? to make a pretty massive vase. Were you using that uh, one millimeter nozzle? That was still on the stock 0.4 millimeter nozzle, but mm-hmm. I did order a uh, the CHT 1.8 millimeter. Oh my! Nozzle that they make that Nathan recommended. So yeah, those are really fun. I think I'll be printing some <laughs> really thick layers you're, you're in the right. next couple it's weeks. Like, it's like laying out spaghetti. Yeah, it'll be thicker than the filament going into it. So. <laughs> now that that's funny. That's yeah, funny. this will be interesting. Yeah, what what do you got going on, Nathan? Well, I'm getting back to doing some 3D printer reviews. I'm tinkering around and trying to develop some new mods and stuff. Um, right now, I am working on the review for a Flying Bear Ghost Six. And so far, I kind of like the machine. I'll be posting a. Uh, short about it shortly here and then i'll have my review video out soon yeah i watched your hour-long video of the snap maker oh no whatever the model number of that is Um, i thought we were looking for sponsors here you can't be bringing up those uh (laughs) those kind of shameful videos i don't know if i call it shameful i i when i see videos like that it's obvious that you're going to be honest about stuff. And I appreciate that. Um, it, I don't think it's a bad machine. I think it's overpriced for what it is. Right. After, after watching your, your, your video, if it was half the price, I think it might be a good value, but at the close to $1,500 price, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. I think it's been out for a while and they, they're starting to put it on clearance pricing. So if you can pick one up for, you know, five or $600, it might be worth it. But at three times that price, there's no way I'd pay that much. Yeah. For our listeners at home, it's a, the snap maker is a, a unit that does 3d printing, CNC machining and laser. And uh, it uses three different tool heads. It looks like a really well-built machine, but it just, it looks like it's a pain in the butt to change over. And, it does all three of those things, but none of them very well. Right. 
Seems so. like a machine for someone who doesn't know what they want. So they're like, well, maybe I want all three of these. So I should just buy this one machine. When in reality, you don't want all three of those things. You could buy three separate machines for that price. That would be way better. Yeah, probably. So, all right. Well, we do have a couple questions this week. Thanks, guys, for the questions. But we do have a follow-up uh, from, I can't pronounce his name properly. This is from Nathan's Discord channel. It's from... Oh, yeah. Namion. Namion. Uh, thank you, Namion. He says, I'm listening to the Printing with Supports podcast right now, which was our last podcast, <clears throat> and have something that might help Guy and possibly others as well. And Cura, and Cura, if you go to the marketplace and download the extension settings guide, it helped me a ton learning the different settings. Now, I did go and download this thing, and it is amazing. Um, if you click on something, you right-click on something, any of the settings in Cura, it brings up like a full page document with pictures and explanations and everything of exactly what this setting does. So that helped me a lot. I actually went, I, I went down a rabbit hole where I spent like 45 minutes looking at all these different things. Cause I don't know what the hell they are. So I thought that was really good. Thank you so much. Namion. Um, yeah, I haven't uh, checked it out yet, but, Next time I open up Cura, that's definitely an extension I'll check out and install and get started with. Now, if Cura can just, when you hit the open button, <laughs> not take 45 seconds. <laughs> yeah. I do love the Cura marketplace there. There are some really yeah. good plugins that they have just kind of baked in there that you can install directly from the app. Uh, just makes it really easy to add on extensions and things like that. Yeah, it reminds me of something like Octoprint, where there's just a bunch of cool stuff that people have developed for it, and uh, you can just download it and use it. Do they have paid stuff there, too, or is everything pretty much free? Uh, I'm not sure if they have paid stuff. All the stuff I've ever downloaded has been free little extensions. Well, that's good. So now, not only can you mod your 3D printer, you can also mod your slicer. <laughs> that's That's actually a good thing, I think. So we've got two questions here, and this first one is from Stephen. I wonder if this is the same Stephen from last last week. I don't think I don't think so. He says, "Hello, I have an artillery Sidewinder X2, and like to install Clipper on it to see if I can print faster. Since Clipper requires a Raspberry Pi, and it seems that they are too expensive, what are my options? There are so many different things to choose from, and I'm not sure which offers the best bang for the buck." Steven. Now, I have a pretty good idea of some of this stuff. I actually did a video of five different alternatives for using a Raspberry Pi. Um, JJ, you look like you have something to say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my screen is frozen. But yes, uh, Guy has a great video that explains a bunch of your different options out there. Uh, and after I watched that, I ordered a few Orange Pi Zero Twos, and I think they're the cheapest option that work well right now. I've got one running on my King Rune KP3S Pro that I modded out a bunch. The only downside to that one is stock, it only comes with one USB-A port on there, but they do sell an add-on board that oh, gives you two extra ones that you just plug in right on top 
and that will give you three, which I think three is the most anyone ever needs with one going to the printer, one going to a webcam, and then you still have a third extra USB header for whatever else you might want to add on there. Yeah, you can always do the UART thing too, which is connecting it from the GPIO pins directly into the the uh, main board. Yes, so you, yeah. you bypass the USB. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I found with a lot of those different items I used was the the biggest difference is the I/O, the input output stuff, mm-hmm. and the... not having enough USB is definitely an issue. Mm-hmm. And the one with that was adding check the manufacturer of that board's website to see if they have instructions. Um, Because I initially was having issues with it. Then I went to the official Orange Pie website and they've got a document to explain how to put, uh, I think we use Mm K-I-A-U-H, I don't know how to pronounce that, to install Clipper. And they've got a document and you follow exactly their steps and then it worked it was yeah. very easy when following their steps, but when trying to follow some random tutorial I found online, I was having a bunch of issues. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nathan, you have any experience with this stuff? Yeah, so um, I bought some Raspberry Pis before the great Raspberry Pi shortage that we're currently in, so I didn't have to pay 100 bucks for a tiny little computer that barely does anything. Um One alternative that I think is really interesting is you can just get an old laptop and uh, install Linux on it and then run Clipper off of the laptop and also open the web interface of uh, Mainsail or whatever you're using to interface with the controller. And you can run that all off of a single laptop, apparently. Um, It's one of the projects that I started but never finished, but I think it would be a pretty cool interface to just open up a laptop download the models directly onto your your laptop, slice them, and then drag and drop them over into the browser and print them and have that all run um, as a standalone device plugged into the printer. Yeah, that's a really good point, Nathan. Not a lot, they, nobody talks about it. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. There are a couple of videos out there. However, everybody keeps saying Raspberry Pi, Raspberry Pi, Raspberry Pi, Raspberry Pi. And not a lot of people are talking about, all you got to do is have something running Linux. And then you can download what uh, JJ was talking, which is K-I-A-U-H, which stands for Clipper Install and Update Update Helper. Yeah, Yeah, I think something called Caillou or something like that. And it's really easy and really simple. It'll actually install Octoprint too. Um, I found that that was the easiest way to get Clipper on any of these different boards that I had was just to install uh, the the bare bones Linux distributions, whether it's Armbian or Debian, and then install it on there and then just use that K-I-A-U-H. And then you can just go through and install the stuff. Yeah, JJ, you have something? Uh, one say? nice, really nice uh, addition to using a laptop since it usually has more USB ports and it's probably bigger than your Raspberry Pi, it can support multiple installations of that. So you can control multiple printers all at the same time mm-hmm. versus a Raspberry Pi would probably struggle. Now, if you had, let's say you had a, a, a laptop that runs Linux and it's only got one USB output, can you hook that up to like a USB hub? 
and yeah. then hook it up to multiple printers. And as long as those printers have an IP address, they'll do what you need it to do. Or how does that work? Yes. Yeah. You can use a USB hub and same with on a raspberry Pi, you could use a USB hub. Okay. On those. Um, that's generally one of those problems. Your processing power will be your limitation on the little single board computers. Sure. Sure. The, the only reason I look into using a laptop instead of a Raspberry Pi is when a Raspberry Pi costs $200 and a used laptop on eBay costs $110, it's like, why are you paying $90 extra for something that has one-tenth of the features? Might as well just get the laptop and go that route. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, except I don't want to have more equipment in my office than I need to have. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I don't. I've. No, I don't have a laptop. I've never owned a laptop, uh, so I've got one at work that just stays at work, and I brought it home one time. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, one other thing to mention on this too is that uh, a really good option. Probably when I did that video, I probably found the best option was the BQ Pi Four and their CB One, which. The CB1 is Raspberry, uh, it's a clone of Raspberry Pi's Compute Module 4, the CM4, and it's a little tiny board that plugs into another board that's a lot like the, the Raspberry Pi frame. You plug it into there, and the, the combination of the two is about $50, I think, $50, $60 bucks now. And if you, it makes it really easy, too, because if you go to Big Tree Tech's GitHub page, they have ready to install images for everything. So you can just install the, the image right from their, their GitHub without any installation of Clipper or anything else. You just burn it to a, an SD card, pop it in, and you're pretty much ready to go, which is nice. Yeah, the other cool thing that Big Tree Tech offers is the Manta board, which mm-hmm. is basically like your 3D printer's main board but it's got a big socket on the top where you can put one of those compute modules in. And then you have a nice compact package that has your clipper installation and has all your stepper motors and fan drivers and all that stuff, just all integrated into one piece. Yeah. I've got one of those coming to me. Yeah. I had Uh one show up this week and it seems like a cool, it's a bigger project. If you want to change out your entire main board and add clipper at the same time, uh, seems like a really nice option. Yeah, I'm going to put it on my, my Voron 0.1 when I, whenever I get to building that. <clears throat> the thing is, with their CB1 module, it's, not a, it's, it's a clone as far as the size and some of the functions of the CM4. However, it doesn't do some things that the CM4 module will do. So be aware of that. So on both their little adapter board and the Manta board, it's got um, hookups for like a camera interface and a, and a LCD display. They will not work if you're using the uh, Big Tree Tech control module in there. They'll only work if you put the Raspberry Pi control module in there. And also the GPIO pins are different from one to the other. So those are a couple things you have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. I actually found somebody online on AliExpress where they were selling the CM4 boards 
for like 60 bucks. And I bought a couple of them. And the nice thing about those is they have a uh, built-in memory of like 16 gigabytes. So you can install Clipper on there and Linux on there without an SD card, which is nice. So that's something you can do on some of these orange pies too. They have an EMMC. Mm, yeah. Um, it seems like memory. Um, it seems like the philosophy behind Big Tree Tech and their Manta product is to just reduce the overall part count and make it easier to manage all the electronics because mm-hmm. that's one of the most kind of annoying things about putting together a clipper build sometimes because you got your main board and then you got to run cords over to your um, your Raspberry Pi and have all this set up correctly. But just having it condensed down into one piece makes a whole lot of sense to me. Absolutely. I agree with you. And anything, their document- else you want, anything else you want to say there, JJ? Oh, their documentation, I feel like, is impressively good. I feel like whenever I read through their documents, it's very long-winded and explains a lot of things in there. Yeah. I, I, I do want to say that I'm a Big Tree Tech real quick, or BQ, whatever you want to call them. I think it's actually Big Tree Tech is the, the name of the main company. Am I correct in that? Yeah, so Big Tree Tech and BQ are kind of tight at the hip. They're, they're, yeah. They share a lot of uh, stuff. So if you get a Biku printer, it usually has all Big Tree Tech components. Yeah. The, the thing I really like about a lot of their, 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 very, their stuff is, seems to be engineered very well, but their documentation is very good and their support online is very good. In other words, they're like their GitHub. They've got everything on there. They've got all kinds of stuff. It's a big repository of everything they do, and it's very well-documented equipment. So I, I'm i very happy with pretty much – nothing's perfect, but I'm pretty happy with everything I've bought from them or received from them, I should say. Yeah, I had one board that failed, and it was completely my fault. <laughs> so, <laughs> But other than that, they've been very good. I, uh, I shorted some pins together and blew the main board, so I just – decided to package that one up and return it and exchange it for a new one. Oh, it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) I plugged it in and just nothing. Right. I plugged it in maybe a little bit wrong. All right. Well, I I hope that helps Steven. And the best advice I can give you, if you want something really easy is, is to go the, the big tree tech route with the CB one and Pi four combination. Uh, which is a really good way to do it. And that'll get you everything you need to get Clipper up and going for about six, under $60. So, all right. Uh, this next question comes from Justin. And this is a problem we all have with everything <laughs> all the time. It says, hi, fellas. I'm having a real problem with stringing. Whenever I print, I get these fine hairs all over the place. I did try changing the retraction settings in Cura, but it doesn't matter if I set it as high as six or as low as one. I am printing mostly PLA on an Ender 5 Pro. Thanks for the great podcast, Justin. So, Nathan, where should he start looking on this? Um, We're talking about stringing? Yep. Okay. Um, Well, he did the right thing by starting with retraction settings. That's usually the first thing that I'll look at. Um, in addition to the retraction distance, you can also increase or decrease the retraction speed. 
Usually you want the retraction speed to be as high as possible without getting grinding of the filament. So um, basically what's going on here in terms of the physics is you're pushing filament out of the nozzle and you've kind of, you're kind of got some tension on the, well, it's actually compression on the filament itself. And when you stop extruding, like once the stepper motor stops moving, it's got some stored energy. It's kind of like a spring and it'll continue to shoot some of that plastic out as it sits there. Um, the other thing is as plastics heat up, they expand. So if you're pushing plastic in and then you stop, the plastic that's in the chamber will continue to heat up a little bit and it'll take up more room and more plastic will ooze out of the nozzle. So um, there's a couple of physical causes, but the solution is pretty much always the same. It has to do with your retraction settings. Also, um, you could try looking at your filament to see if it's dry. If your filament has absorbed moisture from the air, then it expands more because it absorbs some water. And as that gets heated up, it turns into steam and that takes up a lot more volume, which causes it to extrude a little bit of additional material out. But um, at the end of the day, there's some printers that you can just never get the retractions or filament properties dialed in perfectly, and you'll always have a little bit of stringing. Um, it, it just has to do with a lot of different components and the way that it, they all work together. Some machines, I just never get their, their string to go away completely. And if you're stuck in that situation, you just kind of have to manage your print quality with like post treatments and stuff. Yeah. JJ? I would say filament, definitely. If you've tried changing retraction settings and you're still getting those fine, like bad amount of fine wispy hairs, if you're still using the filament that came in the box, uh, that's almost always, I find, really low quality filament that they bundle in with printers and always gives me bad stringing. Then I put a spool of just some overture or some other, some $20 spool of filament on there and the fil the stringing just goes away immediately. So if you've only have one spool of filament, maybe try a different spool. And that's what I've been in this situation before where I go chasing retraction settings and then I just put a different spool on there. <laughs> All my stringing goes away. And it's like, well, uh, it was, that was a day of work that I didn't yeah, need to it, do. It, it, it's like, well, have you rebooted it? <laughs> so, um, is there a way to actually test for retraction settings or is it just hit and miss? So I well, always, yeah, I'll let JJ go. He's got some yeah. experience with doing these uh, calibrations, I think. Yeah. In Cura, I do a retraction tower. Um, is that so something they, built into Cura? It's, I would say it's in the marketplace. You can add on, um, it's called part for calibration. Okay. Something and so you can do a retraction tower and then there's a, you can change G code post-processing is another tab. And so you can change it per layer, per different sections and change what your retraction settings are. What, what exactly does a retraction tower do? Uh, you have one section that's one millimeter retractions and then another section that's two millimeter retraction. Uh, so it's a way of testing a range of retraction settings Okay, and then all in one for, print. You look for stringing and find out which one mm -hmm. kills it? Yeah, which section of it looks best over okay. a range instead of needing to print out 
a bunch of different models. Does temperature have anything to do with this? Temperature can also be an issue there. Uh, if, you're, if you're printing too hot, I can find, I usually find stringing happens. So bumping down your temperature, I've found helps. The way that I like to think of it is it's like that gooey mozzarella pizza where you pull on a slice away and it's just got those strings of cheese stretching between the pizza and the slice. Um, and there's a lot of print settings you can change to help uh, help those little strands snap off. So um, one of them, they, I'll go into some of the more niche ones aside from retraction settings. So one of them is Z hops on retraction. So if you do Z hops, it's lifting the print head off of the part before it does a travel move. And when you're lifting the part up in the Z direction uh, or lifting the print nozzle up in the Z direction, it always, almost always forms like a little strand. And then when you move it away, it stretches that out and creates the little wisps. Um, so I've found that if I have a lot of stringing and I disable Z hops, then it finishes printing in one area and then moves to another, and it just kind of shears it off with the nozzle's tip. Um, yeah, what's up? With... Guys, got a, a point to bring up? Uh, no, I don't know if I have a point to bring up. I, I just wanted, I just wanted to ask: Is is Z Hop enabled or disabled mostly in Cura? Is that like something that's turned on most of the time? Um, it depends on the printer. So like on the stock profile for the artillery sidewinder, it, Z hops are on by default, but for the stock profile on an Ender 3, they're usually off by default. And what it usually comes down to is if you have an efficient Z axis, like if you can move Z up and down really quickly, usually the printer manufacturers will enable Z hop because, um, if you've got kind of a weak Z axis, then Z hops can cause layer inconsistencies. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so aside from Z hops and uh, guy uh, and uh, JJ bringing up the temperature, turning the temperature down will help reduce those a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. I guess your travel speeds can affect how much stringing is occurring. Like if you move away really quickly and you snap that piece off before it stretches into a long strand. Uh, that can reduce your stringing or it can make it worse. You never know until you try it out. Um, having a larger nozzle diameter will also cause more stringing because you, you can't just like snap that little piece off easily because it's like thicker to begin with. Um, I found and, um, yeah. to the extreme of that on my one millimeter nozzle, you get no stringing on that. The slightest amount of retraction and there's no oozing because there's no back pressure on that nozzle interesting um just kind of a weird thing i noticed of as soon as the, the slightest retraction happens nothing comes out because there's no back pressure on that nozzle yeah so you get into the details of like how the hot end is constructed and i think it's a area where we really haven't found the best solution in terms of hardware um i guess once we figure it out all the nozzles will be the same but for now it's it's kind of strange to me is is direct drive or Bowden setups is either one of those more um uh, what's the word i'm looking for oh, oh I, I, moment are, are either one of those more uh, uh susceptible to stringing than the other yeah i would say um 
direct drive always pretty much always has less stringing than a Bowden setup because with a Bowden setup, you've got about a foot of filament that's in compression inside of that tube, which is acting like a big spring versus direct drive. You're grabbing and pushing and pulling that filament right at the melt zone. So you're, you've got a lower response time. Like when you do a retraction immediately, it pulls back. So, uh, one of one of the things that Justin might want to try is I know like on an under five because I have one it's just a regular Bowden setup, but on Thingiverse they actually have a model of a a little thing where you can actually just take the the, the motor right off the uh, extruder and put it on top of the hot end. And it's just a little part, and you can put a Bowden tube between the you know just a small amount of PTFE between the the extractor and the and the and the hot end and it works that's direct drive yeah but it's a really easy fix but it adds weight to that direct drive doesn't have to be an expensive mod you can do it with pretty much the parts that you have and just print something out yeah um i'll just do one last comment in the before i get too far off into the woods here but um i've heard that having powerful fan motors for your part cooling can also exacerbate stringing. I'm not sure how true that is. I'd have to do some experimentation on my own, but the the reasoning is that if you are pulling away and you've got a powerful jet of air, it can actually take that filament and like blow it around a little bit and cause the string to be worse. But I could also see the opposite being true where you're cooling the filament down faster so it has less opportunity to string. Yeah. I've, I've, I've had some problems with stringing in the past, but it's it's never been a really big deal because I have a you know a little heat gun. You have to take a hairdryer to it. I just somebody told me once to do that. I saw it in a video somewhere. I just blow it off, and all that stuff just magically disappears. Yeah, it's, it's not a huge deal, I don't think. Anyways, it's annoying. Right, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of post processing you can do to manage stringing to the point where you could print something that looks awful when it's done, uh, when it comes off the build tray, but just with five minutes of cleaning it up, it can look like a perfect model. So, I mean, just uh, do what you got to do to get the prints looking as good as you need them to. All right. Do you have anything else you want to add, JJ? No, I think it was a great discussion. Covered a lot of the solutions. All right. So I was thinking about something, guys and JJs. the new 3D printers that are coming out, like especially on the high performance side uh, with Bamboo Labs and other companies, um, there's kind of this issue, or I see it as an issue, of things becoming increasingly proprietary. And one of the issues with that is that these companies, once they stop supporting the prod, once they stop supporting the product, who's going to produce spare parts and keep these machines running? Or are we just going to throw them all in the trash? Um, one of the things that I really like about the legacy 3D printers, like your Prusas, your Ender 3s, is that I could pull one out of a dumpster right now, and I know how every component works. I can print out replacement parts for them, and I can basically keep those machines running indefinitely. And in terms of print quality, there really isn't that big of a difference between an old Ender 3 and a new Bamboo Labs. The only real difference is speed and convenience. But, I mean, it's kind of to the point where I'm asking, do we really need all these proprietary, fancy, 
easy to use solutions, or maybe we can kind of slow things down a little bit and stick with the open, open source roots and have a printer that could literally last you a lifetime. Wow. That's a, that's a big question, Nathan. And I'm not (laughs) sure we could talk about that for days. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you and then I kind of disagree with you also. I understand it from a manufacturer standpoint of, you know, a really good example of proprietary stuff is Apple. And for years, until they started using the Intel chips, all their silicone or their CPUs, that was all proprietary stuff. It didn't work on anything but theirs, um, their operating system. And I understand tying your customers to your ecosystem because it, it, it helps with, you know, the, the product retention or customer retention over time, especially for spare parts or replacements. Um, but I also understand from a hobbyist standpoint where having stuff open source is awesome because you can just change what you want when you want or repair it with whatever you want because all the stuff is interchangeable and so it's proprietary stuff. So, and then you can lose a customer because they can just get it somewhere else instead of from you. You're right. JJ? Uh, I think another big thing to add on to that is beyond the physical side of things, the software side of things, when they tie it to their cloud support. If the Bamboo Labs cloud goes down, even for an hour, that's a huge inconvenience currently. Uh, But imagine if in five years, Bamboo Labs closes or something and their cloud support goes down, then you can't send prints from their slicer to their printers anymore because it needs their servers to be online. Yeah. And, and so, that, that's yeah. just through Wi-Fi. You can still burn it on a card and stick it in there. Yes. Yeah. You can still physically carry it over yeah. there, but we're not cavemen around here. <laughs> we want to use Wi-Fi to send I, I'm prints. I'm a caveman. I use my SD cards every day. <laughs> See, I, I, I do everything I can not to use the SD cards. Yes. I send yeah. everything over Wi-Fi. I don't even like Ethernet. I just want everything cordless. <laughs> yeah, I agree with set it there. I think JJ brings up a good point about um, like the way that Clipper works is it just runs on your local network and you could have no internet access and still be able to upload parts to your printers and monitor them and, you know, print benches and all sorts of stuff. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the other thing about software support is when a company goes out of business, nobody's maintaining the firmware for that Mm -hmm. printer. So there's no updates, there's no bug fixes. It's just kind of like a a product that's just kind of dead in the water if any issues come up. Um, The closest analog that I can think of this is there's a company called Boosted Boards and they made electric skateboards for a while. And when they went out of business, everything was like really locked down and proprietary. And basically all their products are just kind of bricked now because there's no support. There's no replacement parts. They had like special tech in their batteries so that you couldn't change the batteries out except to their proprietary stuff. So, I mean, I kind of see a lot of these printers, like what's going to happen in five or six years. I mean, a lot of people aren't thinking that far ahead, but you're going to have to throw them away. In the case of the skateboard company, what, what, what was the name of it again? Boosted Boards. Boosted Boards. After they closed their doors, 
did anybody in any kind of, I assume there's, you know, with everything, there's a subculture or, or a community surrounding it. doesn't matter. You know, Paperclips, I'm sure has one. Yeah. Um, had, did anybody in that community step up and say, okay, we can try to, you know, reverse engineer this stuff so we can actually make parts or change batteries or anything? Or did it just, everybody just threw their crap out? Well, um, it's kind of like there, there were some people that stepped up and, you know, you could buy parts and try and flash the firmware and all that kind of thing. But it, I think for some of their more popular products, people reverse engineered everything, but for a lot of their products, there's just, it's just like lost tech where just nobody knows how to use it anymore. Um, and I think it's kind of like if a company is going to go under, they need to have a plan of what they're going to do with all of their IP. I personally think that if you're going to go out of business, you should release everything and open source it so people can maintain their stuff uh, into the future because mm-hmm. you're just kind of putting a death sentence on all of your products if you just stop supporting it. And you're putting a death sentence on your customers too, because if you came back and let's say a year after you, you know, you, you, you retain your IP and then a year after you sell your IP to somebody else and they start using it, that your customers are not buying that crap again. Fool yeah. me once, mm-hmm. you know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right. I think um, the analogy to Apple that you brought up is kind of an interesting one. So like I like to think about this in terms of automobiles and cars uh, and, and like high-end computers and stuff. So in the case of Apple or like a car, nobody's going out there. I mean, there's some fringe people that are going out there and building their own cars. But for the most part, people go to the car dealership and buy it because there's the manufacturing at scale and the performance that you get um, that you just can't do in your garage welding stuff together. So you kind of have to rely on the, the manufacturer in a lot of ways for that kind of stuff. But the difference between cars and computers and 3D printers is 3D printers are at a level of reliability where you can almost guarantee that something's going to break in 30 days of continuous printing versus if you have a car, you can drive it for a couple of years doing regular maintenance and be virtually like there's virtually no chance that anything's going to go wrong with it unless you're driving like a, a crazy person. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm okay with proprietary stuff as long as it's sufficiently reliable. Like if I buy an Intel processor, I know that it's going to run my computer for 10 years without any hiccups. So like, do I really need to know how it works? Not really. But for a 3D printer where it's going to break and I'm going to have to fix stuff like regularly, I think having an open source or like more modular and easy to fix architecture makes more sense there. But aren't most of the, you know, aside from what I would call the hobbyist printers, which is anything under probably $1,500, you look at these three, four, five, six, seven, $20,000 3D printers, aren't all those proprietary? Yeah. And the service contracts are the most expensive part about keeping those machines running because you have to hire their technicians to come out and service and fix everything. Okay. Okay. I, I know. And sometimes it too, with a lot of that stuff is isn't even the, the mechanical stuff. It's the software side that you have to buy an SSA or a software service agreement just to, just to even be able to call in for tech support. 
Right. Um, and that's a monthly fee. So um, I, I guess we're, we're looking at it strictly, I wouldn't say strictly, but more from a, a hobbyist standpoint than a, a commercial business standpoint. Right. So I would think of it in terms of 2D printers. There's a pretty good analogy there between 3D printers and 2D. Um, you've got your commercial office copy machines that can crank out thousands of documents a day and they need to be maintained by a, a trained technician. Um, so you have to have a service contract and that just adds to the price of keeping those machines running. But they provide a level of performance and speed that you can't get on your home copy printer. Like if you print out a thousand documents a day on your home printer, you're going to have to buy a new one in a couple of weeks probably. And if it breaks, you're not going to have a service contract and someone coming out there with a toolbox and fixing it. They'll probably just be like, oh, we can replace that under warranty or no, you need to buy these replacement parts and fix it yourself. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add to this, JJ? <laughs> I feel like one thing thinking about proprietary parts is the consumable um parts to it of with a printer your nozzle is going to wear out even a hardened steel nozzle with enough printing um, is going to need to be replaced in the lifetime of a printer sure um, whereas a lot of parts of it will last you know like the frame is going to last and the motors are going to last a good long time yeah um, and so thinking of the proprietariness of consumable items on a printer yeah, I know we talk about the bamboo quite a bit, and there's other than the the filament and the nozzles, there's other parts on that that need to be replaced regularly, like the little nozzle clean clicky thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking right. about? Where yeah, there's a ton of consumables on that. Yeah, thing. there's a bunch mm -hmm. of that, and that all that yeah. stuff is proprietary. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Let's say you're you're a guy that runs a print farm. You know, not a huge print farm, but, you know, you've got, let's say, 20 printers going and you decide to buy 10 bamboo printers at the cost of, you know, let's say about 10 grand. And you put them in your, your business and then six months later, bamboo goes out of business. You're kind of screwed. I mean, completely. I think I think bamboo will be around for a while. Yeah. What I'm more concerned about is them stopping support for their old products. Like they're, they're not a, uh, a child company of DJI, but a lot of their engineers are from that company. And just think about DJI. If you have a printer, if you have a drone from five years ago, can you get a replacement mainboard or a replacement battery if things start to break? Or are they just kind of like throw it in the trash and get a new one? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that I can't tell you. I know nothing about drones other than they fly around. They have cameras on them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, I look at, you know, let's, let's, let's go back to a computer something like windows, windows still puts sunsets on their operating system. So they only supported, you know, the, if you have a computer that's still running windows 95, let's say <laughs> you can't get updates or any support for it, period. I mean, it's just over and done with you're forced to upgrade the operating system. And most of us are used to that type of thing, but we might, I don't think people are used to buying, you know, spending six, seven, eight hundred dollars on a printer and then not being able to get parts for it down the road. 
Is there any is there any particular printers in mind that have done that recently, gone out of business where they've left their owners holding the bag? I don't know. Yeah, I can't say I can't, I can't think speak of to that. I can't think of any. And in general, I feel like a lot of printers on the consumer level have all been pretty generic parts where you can you can buy nozzles, you can buy motors, and all the parts to printers generally are open source. Well, one of the um, one issue that I've kind of developed a product to address a need in the three D printing industry uh, community is the Ender Three S One series of printers. They all have the Sprite hot end with a little breakout board on the end. But I've heard that Creality doesn't sell replacement parts for that. So I designed and built my own, and I I, I sell it as a product. Um, but there's just like little pieces like that that aren't all that common that people might need. And I guess if there's a big enough market for it, someone will come along and develop a solution for it. Um, and I think things aren't sufficiently advanced right now to, to the point where we won't be able to engineer our own solutions. But when you look at things like the bamboo labs printer, the PCBs on those things are very complex and would take probably weeks for someone to reverse engineer and produce. Um, and I yeah. don't think that, it's going to be worth it for everyone. Yeah. But I think that if even if let's, you know, I, I hate to pick on bamboo, but let's look at bamboo for a second. I mean, those are just linear rods and motors and bearings. Somebody would probably come up with something in this community. I would imagine fairly quickly if they went out of business where you could put a whole new hot end on it, replace the motherboard and just run clipper on it. Just all you're doing is telling motors to move at a certain speed at a certain time. And if you replace the hot end with a, with an open source thing, it would work, right? Yeah, I think oversimplifying so. things. I think someone will come up with a way to do that um, pretty quickly here. Uh, maybe within the next year, someone will have like a, a clipperized Bamboo Labs printer prototype going, yeah. um, which is pretty neat. But you're still having to, I guess work around an electronic system that like you're going to need a lot of custom cable adapters and stuff. And it's not going to be an easy job to do, but it's something that you could figure out. Yeah. I think you would definitely have to replace a majority of the hot end because you've got a lot of stuff going on with that hot end. Yeah. It's all proprietary stuff. Even the nozzle is proprietary. Yeah. And there's a lot of connectors going around. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in the meantime, there's really no reason to do it. Yeah, they're sure, supporting yeah. it, so just <laughs> go along with it. Yeah, yeah. JJ, you're going to say something? No, yeah. It's uh, if it's working, it'll keep working. <laughs> no one's going to replace it for now. Well, there, I'm sure everybody has heard that saying, except for Nathan. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> right. No, I've heard that saying. I just <laughs> end up breaking things more often. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, Nathan, that's why you're sitting here is because I love those videos where you just fix things that aren't broken yeah, <laughs> or break things that are fine. Either yeah. way, they're, they're fun videos. And yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah. So anything else you guys want to talk about while we're here? Well, do we have one more question? Did we talk about the clipper? Oh, OK. That was actually the first question. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did. Seems like ages ago. Seems <laughs> like ages ago. Um, is there any, is there anything anybody wants to add to either one of those topics that we, we talked about with raspberry Pi and the stringing? I 
think we covered it. I'm good. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that'll end it. And uh, thanks, guys. And remember, we really need questions and participation from you, the listener. So make sure to go to perfectfirstlayer.com, go to the submit page and ask us. Nathan, why don't you tell everybody where you can be found? Um, Look me up on YouTube. It's Nathan Builds Robots. And uh, you'll find me there. All right. JJ? You can find me on YouTube at JJ Shankles. I'm always making videos. <laughs> All right. And I can be found at Guy's Woodshop. So thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. Right. Bye.